start using cutting-edge warp speed 5G technology with your cell phone. Let me tell you about my friends at MobileMobile.io. They have an ultra-fast 4G LTE and 5G network that covers 99% of Americans. So they've got you covered everywhere. Think about it for a moment. You have the opportunity to take a test drive for 10 days with unlimited talk, text, and premium data. What is premium data? Premium data is an allotment of a cellular data that you receive from a higher priority on the network. You won't get throttled like you will with some of those, well, non-brand service providers. To find out more information, all you have to do is go to mobilemobile.io. That's mobilemobile.io to start your 10-day free trial. This show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Jay Allen Show. Hopefully you're off to a good and grand start of the week. Everything's going fantastic in this second week of March of 2021. Yeah, that's timeline for you, just in case you know exactly where you're at. So this conversation that it is being recorded... Or this conversation that was recorded is probably a better way to say it was from a few weeks ago. I want you to know the truth. Most of these things we try to do live and on the radio station as close as possible to real time, or at least we try to do them live. This was my mess up, so we ended up having to do it as a pre-record. But I have to tell you, it was a great conversation that I had with Daniel Snyder. Now, if the name sounds familiar, it's because a lot of people are familiar with Daniel Snyder. Daniel's career spans over 30 years of diverse global professional experience facilitating research, partnering with stakeholders, and creating sustainable solutions for effective occupational safety and health management systems. He served in the Army as infantry military intelligence and as safety liaison for implementing field expedite safety training as part of the National Incident Management Systems for Disasters. Let me not take up any more of your time, and let's get this conversation started between Daniel Snyder and yours truly, right here on The Jay Allen Show. Safety FM, changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. So, number one, I appreciate you coming on to the show, because I always think it's interesting when I get to meet people that I don't know and get to find out all kinds of new information, so... The, the easiest question and the hard question is always the same one. How did you get started with this whole thing? Why did you decide to go down inside of this world of safety? You know, I'd say everybody has their origin stories. And I think that's part of what makes uh, some of us in this business interesting uh, across the board. And, and I found that all professionals start a little bit differently. We've come a long ways from how did you get to be this way from uh, I, you know, I, miss, <laughs> I, I, I missed a meeting. You know, I got hurt twice, made the OSHA log. You know, I mean, I've heard all that early on in the 90s. You know, I got in in the early 90s and I kind of got in, you know, with a degree in science and in biology with um, a hazardous materials training and research group. And so we implemented the Haswopper standard that went into effect in 89. So we supported all the all the training for that. And so I think that's what made it, you know, kind of my start with it in the in the hazmat world. So I started at a community college and then kind of put my own shingle out and 
and uh, realized companies were, were really interested in training and design and, and, and stuff. And then Confined Space came out in the mid-90s and just kind of found myself in the role of a, of a trainer and trying to create the best training possible, you know, and that's what seemed uh, clients really enjoy. I was a little bit different in approach and, and it kind of went to the, the adult learning side, you know, so I've got a science background and then adult learning and, and, and all that to where I really tried to mix uh, the professions and try to bring, bring the best of adult learning theory into the, into the actual training and education of our profession. So, so that's how it's, so that's how it started. But what was the, what was the dream process when you first came about? What were you thinking when you were much younger before going into college? What was the, what was the dream of, this is what I want to do when I go further down. You know, no, you know, I'll tell you what, when, you know, growing up, I grew up as an Iowa farm kid. And so, you know, the, the daydreams on the farms of things is, is getting out of that area and seeing the rest of the world. Um, you know, went did, went to high school in Brazil, South America. Oh, nice. So got, Very nice. Did yeah, you have to learn, so, did, were you able to do it in English or did you have to learn, to, well, did you have to learn Portuguese? Well, both. The, the school is the American school mm-hmm. of Brasilia in the capital. So it'd be like the D.C. version. And so all the embassy kids from around the world went to the private American school. So I was basically technically in sovereign land of a lot of different countries within a square mile, you know, <laughs> uh, with the embassies and all that. Uh, so, uh, you know, down there, I just really got interested in culture and I really got interested in learning how to talk and communicate with people. So I think being out of the farms with very little diversity exposure and being immersed, full immersion in the country of Brazil. Um, and of course I embraced it. You know, I was wanting to learn the language. I was pretty fluent in Portuguese at the time, not very literate. You know, I never focused on the reading and writing much, uh, but I can still speak it somewhat today. Uh, I still have dreams every once in a while. So that cultural shift, I think, is what got me, you know, somewhat interested in in, in the piece of, of people and, and some of that. The driving force coming out of, you know, going into, into the, you know, as a kid, I really didn't have any other dreams whatsoever. Maybe be a diplomat. I think the exposure in, in, in Brazil made me feel that, you know, it'd be kind of neat to be on an international scene, you know, and, and, and working in some kind of diplomacy capacity. So, uh, you know, meeting some of those uh, ambassadors and things like that. I think that kind of is a, as a, as a boyish teenage dream for me, that's what kind of came into, into my mind, you know, with what I was seeing, you know, as far as projecting in the future. So, uh, but came back with a love of science and got a degree and then needed a job. And so the only thing I get was, you know, or the best thing I get was hazardous materials uh, mm-hmm. training work. So, so, yeah, so, kid, so, af- so after Brazil, do you decide that's when you want to go into the military? Yeah, actually, well, that, that's a little different story. You know, I okay. basically went through two, two years of college and then ran out of money. Okay. So, so went into, uh, you know, the GI bill and they paid for, for school and all that and, uh, ended up in a, in a long range surveillance infantry unit. So we were part of military intelligence. So the idea of gathering intelligence and, and how to do that effectively and report up the chain of command and, and support troops and, call in for fire and, and different things that, that, you know, a small team, military team does, um, you know, that really formulated a lot. And, and also, too, to that point, just the the brilliance of the training machine. You know, I mean, nobody trains better than the United States military to task. You know, they just do. That's what they do. So I think being exposed to that regiment and, and that type of soldiering, you know, I think really kind of maybe come back in with some uh, money and fresh ideas and finished college pretty quickly and then was ready to step out into the, into the real world in some form or fashion. So, so I think that shift midway through, through uh, college to, to, 
joined the military and, and experienced that, uh, really, I think, kind of formulated and made some things concrete for me. Not not knowing at the time, I got to be honest. Yeah, you know, this is all retrospective and reflection. Oh, right. you know, at, at the time, you know, at the time, I was doing like every other 20, 21 year old dude, you know, I mean, I was, you know, partying and having fun and, you know, going to school, you know, sometimes I was enrolled. <laughs> sometimes I like <laughs> it. I was enrolled, you know. But, so did you, so did you get the itch? Did you get the itch of the military where you, you were, did you ever contemplate of maybe doing this as, as your career than getting, you know, we'll, we'll call it early retirement, even though the, you know, 20 years is still 20 years, however you look at it. Yeah. I look at it now and I would have already been retired and, and, uh, on a second career, but, uh, you know, who knows where that path would have taken me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I did consider it a few times I got, um, honor graduate out of infantry school. And so when you, when you get an honor grad, uh, designation, I guess, or kind of selected out of that. Um, and I was a little older than some of the kids and, and things like that that were in there. So I just ended up leading it. Um, and got undergraduate. And then after that, yeah, then the Ranger battalions and, you know, special forces and different groups were like, you know, trying to recruit you because that's what they do in the machine, just like any company, you know, they look for people that they, they want to place. And so that, that was real interesting. And, and psychological operations, there is, there are a lot of things that you know, my exposure in the military, especially with military intelligence, you know, made me really think about that being a career. Um, but I, I, uh, but I got assigned to, a. a Guard Reserve Unit in Iowa, 34th Infantry Division, so I could finish out my college and and basically spent my time pulling security in a helicopter flying over cornfields on the war on drugs looking for pot plants. You know, that was, you know, kind of... Boy, have times changed, right? <laughs> right, exactly. I, I laugh about that. I think it's funny, you know, and and so, uh, you know, uh, it, it was, it was you know, kind of that and then getting into back into college and exploring of learning and, and then those aspirations of, of kind of uh, looking at a, at a military career started to, to fade. You know, I found a little bit more interest in, in the private sector market. So, uh, but no, it was a consideration of mine, uh, especially with some of the things that they were throwing at you. You know, hey, these, these kind of bonuses and these kind of schools, and you know, we'll, we'll put you through this. And, and oh uh, yes, you can become an officer because yeah. the college degree it becomes a totally different story. So as you're going through this, you do the GI Bill, you go into the military, you you get out. Then all of a sudden, you I guess, you know, the challenge of school wasn't enough. So you take two years off and say, let's do this all over again. So you go from science and biology, but now you have this whole focus on adult education yeah. and, and human resources. So what what is the shift? In, what is your shift all of a sudden? So why all of a sudden? I mean, it looks like you still love science and biology. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah, but, no, yeah. but, but why the focus now on? adult education? You know, well, I think a lot of it was that that was the area of practice I was performing at the time and to this day really forming the career. But but my my real niche in the market was training and education. You know, that's what companies were hiring me to do. Um, you know, basically be a communicator on behalf of of management on certain topics. And, you know, of course, I think it was just a matter of getting somebody else in there that could train, you know, because other than that, <laughs> same train sucked. And I really didn't want it to be that. And so I was really driven to be good at what I was doing, which then lend itself to obviously a better clientele and more opportunities. So I found, and I needed a master's. I figured I, you know, I might as well get a higher level degree. And so, so I went back to the university of Arkansas and got the human resource development and uh, adult learning. And, and I think that was a real pivotal shift because what I found was that what was real profound to me is that there was a lot of alignment with adult learning principles 
struggles that I was doing as a 24-year-old because out of survival, I didn't know there was theories about this crap. You know, I didn't know there was actually methodologies to it. You know, for me, I was a 24-year-old thrown in with a bunch of crusty old maintenance dues and industry workers and construction <laughs> workers that, you know, I had, one, I had one guy tell me, he goes, he goes, heck, son, I've driven more miles in reverse than you've driven forward. You know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you that's had. true. That's true. Love right there. That's yeah, true. Love. I mean, it, was real. it was real. These guys are in the industry. I show up with some punk. What is he going to teach us? Mm-hmm. And so out of survival, I realized one, I didn't know anything. And so I really early on in my days embraced the philosophy of Socrates. You know, I know nothing, you know, it's, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, and then from there I was, it really, I think opened up that opportunity to learn from the experts and get them talking and get them explaining. And I realized all I really got to do is formulate a good learning environment where people want to share and then ask the right questions. And a lot of these questions, honestly, Jay, were ones that I had. I had no answer to it. I was interested to know what, you know, if this stuff's leaking out of this tank, you know, it, you know, what exactly are you guys going to do? <laughs> yeah. wait, you know, wait, and, but, how, but how does that shift work for you? Because you're coming out of the military. Of course, you're going back into college to, to really become this adult education or, or education specialist is really what it boils down to. But you know how the military, and, I'm, and I say this with much love as I do say it, is command and control. Yeah. So, yeah. but how do, you, how do you know at this time that the, the mental shift, yeah. that this is not the way to approach it, even at, at, at the young age of 24, how do you know that, hey, this is not... I tell you this, this is what needs to be done, especially going right. through several years right. of it. Well, and, and, and I can appreciate that's actually it's, appreciate that question. And, and I think a couple of things on that one at the end of the day, it, that's what felt right to me as a practitioner at the time with the audience I had. Uh, but I think the military didn't jade me in that way because, you know, for me, that experience early on through basic training and airborne school and, you know, all those schools and stuff. When you first get into the military, it doesn't matter which branch of service, you know, their whole job is to break you down and build you how they want you. And, and so depending on where you go from that initial indoctrination process that all military people get, then it becomes actually more adult learning focused on the way they train people after that. And a lot of people don't realize that. Now, command and control, absolutely. And everybody, you know, thinks that and it is very hierarchical. There is respect to chain of command that has to be that way. Um, and, and I think they've done a good job with that. Um, but it didn't jade me. And part of that is too the units that I got into in a, in a military intelligence unit, you know, with small five, six man teams that are out, you know, by mission anyway, long range surveillance, this is before drones. And so that was human intelligence. We were, we were hiding under a rock on a high point with binoculars and a radio. You know, Hold on, I mean, there's that, people out there right now going, there was a time that there was before drones. Yes, there actually was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like to call it, I was, I was in the days, uh, you know, before GPS and before Vortex, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, you know, it was old, I mean, it, it, we weren't too far from <laughs> Vietnam era gear. You know, I had an atlas and a plot. I had a, I had a plot map as well. So I understand. I, I, I li- yeah. I literally had a compass and a map and yeah. land navigation and terrain and darkness and, and you're moving at night and you're, you know, so it was a real communicative team effort. There was no, I mean, there was obviously somebody in charge, a team leader, and there was ranks, you know, and so everybody's pretty much a sergeant. Then you had the commanding officers and all that. But when we were out in the field, in the teams, there wasn't, I mean, you were, we were, we were a group had to operate as a team and rank really didn't matter. Rank only really matters 
you know, when, when there has to be decisions made and orders given, you know, by who's ever in charge of that. But the military does a good job, and I don't know that everybody realizes this, at least my experience in the infantry and the Army, is that they do a real good job of ensuring that every soldier can complete the mission. They want every soldier to know the, the mission, the, the success, what the, the objective is. And that way, as people get picked off with sniper fire down the ranks, that last soldier that might be a private E1 that's 18 years old holding a rifle, he still knows what the objective is. And he doesn't know how to get back. You just got to meet the objective. So, you know, there's there's I think that it's not as controlling as it may seem, you know, the political structure. Absolutely. You know, the authoritative, you know, command and control. Absolutely. But the way that they actually train and educate once that you're, you know, everybody knows to salute. Everybody knows that pecking order and that's ground in from day one. But when you get into learning your job, when you get into learning your tasks and as, as depending on what group you're in, I would imagine, but for my group anyway, I had a lot of special forces guys, a lot of ex special forces, a lot of, so it was very much small team tactics and it was not, Hey, you guys stand to attention and all that. It was, all right, gentlemen, gather around, you know, and we'd all gather around kind of like in a huddle and everybody's pretty equal. You know, I mean, everybody had a job to do. Everybody had their their role and it was managed in that way. And so I think the learning process and my experience in the military a little different than maybe others. So I didn't come out from a 20 year career of, you know, eight to five, very much by the book, very much. Here's the procedures and here's this. And and, and people that are, are and you don't have to be in the military to be that in that kind of mindset. You know, I mean, look at uh, uh, anybody that has that kind of personality or the ways they like to organize their work, organize their things. Mine was all chaos. It was all, you know, you don't know where an ambush is going to come from. You don't, I mean, it was very nimble, very dynamic, very on the fly, if you will, you know? Uh, and I think that that real experience of, you know, kind of the idea of being behind enemy lines with very little fire support, you know, some of those kind of ideas that really put you on, you know, when you look at the art of war and classic, you know, military tactics, you're, you're putting people on death ground. In other words, there's only two routes. You either succeed and live or, or, or die. You know, I mean, there's really no middle ground. That's the only time that I would truly say failure is not an option. <laughs> failure is not an option. No, it's not. And, and the military is very good at putting, especially frontline combat troops in that you know, position and, and the thinking and the programming of the training, you know, they always say, you know, your training will kick in and it does. I mean, it's automated. You don't even realize you could be the most panicked, you know, and, 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 and worry, but you're kind of, you're, you're almost like muscle mental memory. You know, I remember jumping out of an airplane in Canada and it was cold, get my Canadian jump wings and got my boot caught in the apex of the parachute from the guy below me. Oh, and, whoa. <laughs> uh, and you know, and it's cold and we were starting to get tangled up. And so, you know, I just pulled a, a right diagonal slip as hard as I could, you know, and, and, and dumped air and tried to veer that. And then the process is you run off their chute. And so I basically pulled that slip, got the air to try to pull me away. I was running off the acting like I was running bicycling to try to get off that uh, parachute. But, you know, I probably only had 10 jumps in my whole career. Wow. At that point. So, I mean, it was just the, the training takes over. And before every jump, we would go over things like that. So, you know, pre-jump every time you practice your parachute landing falls, PLFs, you know, uh, the commands, the, you know, all that stuff, checking everybody's gear, you know, four or five times, jump masters checking everybody, checking their mental awareness. So, you know, 
once you learn, you know, I was, I was not there very long and I was a younger ranking, you know, uh, soldier, but, um, the more as I age and the more I reflect back and the more I talk with other military people, especially been around for a long time, um, the whole programming of the, of the military machine and training and education really became very, very clear. As a matter of fact, I'm using a lot of those documents on the, on the Z490 committee to do the standard of, of training for uh, the profession and got a dynamite group for that. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how, so, so I think the stereotype of a very structured, regimented, non-yielding, you know, uh, soldier or, or military person, you know, I think that that stereotype where it's true, but people confuse maybe regimented, you can't think you're almost like a robot with stoicism. And, and we, a lot of the military practices is training you into, in, in stoicism, you know, how to be a stoic. And so that stoicism philosophy actually goes back to Romans, how Romans train their, their militaries. And, uh, and, and I'm, and I'm going to tell you, that brings up the next great point here, because then you, ch- you, do, you go into the career, as you were talking about a little, bit, a little bit earlier, but then you start something here later down the road of safety philosopher. And it looks like it's an LLC. <laughs> how, do you, how do you come about doing this? I mean, all of a sudden, do you say, I want to bring... Well, let's just say a different philosophy because that's really what it boils down to yeah, uh, to the yeah. industry. Yeah, I, I think that you fast forwarded about thirty years. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not jumping that far because I, I see that the next thing that, of course, that you did was Environmental Resource Center. Yeah, those are a little out of order. You must be oh, looking okay. at the LinkedIn or something. Like I, I've that, been but. I've been looking around some different things that I could find online. Yeah, of, yeah. of course, I want to get into that, but I also want to get into at what point do you decide that you want to become part of the NSC's? Ozark chapter. I mean, you took yeah. the director position there. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was right after I, uh, you know, did the the University of the Adult Ed, and I had a private practice doing training. And then, uh, really, one of my early, you know, first big mentors was Les Reynolds out of Springfield, Missouri, that ran that chapter, and, and he was probably about seventy at the time, and a, a gracious, big-hearted man. And he really took me under the wings and, and had me teach all of his certification programs. So the NSC certification, you look at all the advanced safety certificate, all those things they offer. Um, so I did that for him uh, for a few years and that got me into that. Um, and then got dispatched down to Katrina, um, you know, for, uh, the disaster response then. Uh, so, so yeah, that was kind of a progression into, you know, doing private training, doing training on behalf of NSC for that chapter, really getting under the wings of, uh, of a, of a generous, you know, Gandhi-like figure of, of Les Reynolds, uh, the late Les Reynolds. And, um, and my favorite story from him is he had to go get Elvis from the movie theater when Elvis was per- performing in town back in the day in the fifties, you know, he's a place. Oh, officer. nice. Very nice. So, good problem to have. Yeah. Little things like that. But, uh, but anyway, um, and then, and then after that went to, uh, you know, do disaster work and was called up with some people that, that knew me and, and want to know if I'd do that. And plus I had clientele with consulting and private things as well. So it kind of naturally progressed and then enter into the, into the span years of exam prep. And then now fast forward to your, your philosophy. That's really been a, a recent phenomenon for me over the last few years of really trying to think back to that philosophical approach to how philosophy mixes in with you know, our, our profession and our practice and just kind of drawing parallels to some of those kind of ideas and thoughts to how our ethics and how our 
profession can think through management systems and organizational learning and, you know, some of these things. And so I just found that to be kind of interesting to me at the time. So, you know, maybe there's a way I can bring it in and, and maybe not. I've got a session at NSC, I think, called, uh, you know, Soc- Socratic Safety, where I'm going to really talk about, you know, a so- Socrates type approach of, you know, asking open-ended questions and more active listening and not really jumping in with opinions, but but really letting the group form guide the group to formulate the right answer. And and that gets into facilitation, it gets into small group, you know, uh, problem solving. And so there's there's a lot of ties to that early methodology. So it's just kind of a fun different spin maybe to to put on you know, how it's, I wouldn't say necessarily anything new other than maybe just kind of a new paradigm or a new lens to think about things in a, in a, in a different way. Well, uh, let's, let's, let's talk about that then for a moment, because when you bring in a new lens or a new philosophy or, or not something new, as you're saying, but probably a different perspective, a paradigm, people of course are going to say, so how, which way are you leaning? Are we talking about lean? Are we talking about behavior-based safety? Are we talking about hop? Do you have any heavy influence that kind of predicts which area you're going to go into or how do you look at it? Well, to me, it's a very holistic approach. I think all the things you listed are valid in and of themselves. And I think they're part of the makeup of a larger picture. Oh, that's such a political answer. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean it to be. I mean, I really don't. I, it's, really, it's really how I see it. You know, okay. I, really, I really like the progression of, you know, I did a lot of behavior-based <laughs> implementation back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I also had to do a lot of cleanup after them, you know. Um, and uh, don't say that. Don't say that too loud. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, in ones that, and that's not the whoever helped bring it in or consultants follow. I mean, just some the sustainability of some of those programs and depend on the organizational culture. You know, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, um, you know, uh, but, you know, I think that natural progression from there into thinking of a more, again, holistic way of a hops, you know, I think the hops idea is a little bit more comprehensive and inclusive in overall systems than behavior-based itself, you know, and that's not taking away from, from behavior-based as a methodology. And even look at the founders of behavior-based. They said, this isn't a silver bullet. This isn't going to fix everything. This is just a tool that we can rethink about how we, we do safety. And, and it was done by psychologists who weren't safety professionals and they were, you know, using those types of psychology methodologies, which brought, you know, that, back into it. You know, we lost a little bit of that from the humanistic in the sixties and then seventies and the, were the OSHA age and kind of put us back to compliance driven. But, um, but I think behavior based was kind of a rebound out of the compliance driven age of the seventies and early eighties. And then you had total quality management, you had all these other things going on. And so it was a real, uh, I think natural way for our profession to look at people and, and not so much look at standard, which is a place, you know, the, the, our profession was before the OSHA era in a way. Um, but, but anyway, that's, that's kind of my thought on those. They all kind of come to it. They all have the thing. It different, depends on the organization. I can launch something like behavior-based in one area goes over really well. And you get into another, uh, under the same corporate flag, for example, even, and the culture at that location isn't maybe quite as mature as the other one. And yeah, you have to make adjustments or, they may actually not be ready. I've advised some managers. I don't know that you're ready (laughs) to, to do this, you know, in a way. And we've had to modify a lot of those interventions in a way that would actually work. Cause if you just crammed a, you know, a BBS thing or a, a, you know, a DuPont stop, you know, and I'm not knocking any of those programs, they were all pioneering programs, but you know, there has to be that 
you know, intimate touch with the local location and the people driving that, those types of ideas. So I think that hops with the human angle. I think that's really opened us up now into the bigger world of human performance improvement, performance technology. You know, I think Dr. Conklin and, and that group that has really kind of pushed that idea away from, you know, uh, more deep into the systems approach and not blaming the worker. And I can tell you, and I'm sure a lot of the, my colleagues and the professionals tell you, you know, we find ourselves in a lot of position defending workers with management because it's a real quick, easy, uh, you know, why did they do that? Well, any idiot wouldn't do that, you know, and it's self-evident and it's like we're Monday quarterbacking people, you know, put yourself in the context and the fog of war, if you will, of that worker. And let's really look at, I guess I put it this way. And I think this is what hops really helps promote is something I've said to management more than once in that, you know, looking at the system, you know, because if we fire that employee and put another employee in that same system and that employee fails, are we going to fire them too? In other words, if our first question isn't, where did we as a management system fail? If that's not the first question, then we're, I think we're heading down the wrong path. And I think that's where the systems piece that Hops brings to the table. And you look at, you know, Ron Gant and some of those other thinkers that are in that area, in that space. Um, I think that's where, you know, me in a different angle coming from an educational you know, philosophical approach of epistemology and how do we know what we know and how do you ensure that, you know, people know and are competent and those kind of ideas. Um, I think it kind of merges a little bit with the, the human psychology and, and some of those things, the EI skills that are now really starting to, you know, the diversity inclusion movements. And a lot of these, we got the new standard that we're working on with uh, mental safety and health from an international standard on that committee. So, there's some of these things that are coming down the, the pike that I think that we need a paradigm shift in how we approach our profession and how what we're being asked to do and what really is our new role and function. And, and I see the research looking at, at that change or kind of giving indicators of what that looks like over the last four or five years. So, so I think we're starting, and that's where I guess I got the idea of, you know, well, I wonder if a, a philosophical lens or, or, or framework might you know, help tip a paradigm or, or open up or, or make people think things in a little bit differently than they traditionally have been taught or they traditionally have thought in management schools and things like that. And it may be a total flop, Jay. You know, I mean, I can get oh, yeah. signed up, man. You know, it's an experiment, but I mean, it's, you know. But, but, but let me ask, so do you start thinking about this before you go back for the third time back to university, back to college oh, in no, regards this is, to this? Are you thinking about this before you go back in, in 2014? You know, I think, I think to, to bring the context of 10 years of span into play here, because that's about the, the difference in the timeframes you're talking. And, it, you know, in owning span and designing exam prep materials for um, people to pass the, the BCSP exams, you know, the CIH, CSP, all those different exams, that forced me in a position of researcher. And so I basically had to research all those competencies, all the source documents, everything that the boards were putting on the exams and all that kind of stuff. So for 10 years, I was dove into research and what's the meaning of safety? You know, what's the meaning of this? What's the competency of this? How do you measure that? And so it really put me in a position to where after I emerged and sold Span uh, two years ago, well, now what am I going to do? <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things to where you kind of have those moments in life where you can, you know, what do I want to do now? You know, what do I really want to work on? What do I really want? I have the opportunity to, 
to, to serve in a way uh, differently now than I had in the past. And, and what do we want that to be? So uh, after basically, ta- and it happened to coincide a lot with COVID too. So I took a lot of time <laughs> at the cabin, man, and, you know, read a lot of philosophy and, and really thought about how I could weave some of those ideas into a, a little bit different spin on a narrative. And, and uh, like I said, you know, it's, it's an, it's an experiment, you know, I've still got uh, other projects and, and consulting work with, with companies that I'm, that, you know, kind of pay the bills and do things, but, but uh, you know, this is kind of a, a giving back and exploration of, of what might be because I have time and, and the resources to do that. Uh, so, so that's kind of the, the angle of what brought me to that epiphany or that thought process was, you know, I've just, read a lot of different, I've read, you know, I read about every major textbook or book that's come out in the profession. I've got it on my shelves and I used it to design the curriculum for span to make competencies for an exam that are supposed to reflect the overall competencies of the profession. You know, you know how, you know how many people are going to ask if their book made your shelf now, you know this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I could definitely, uh, I I don't know if you want to open the Pandora's box. Well, let me put it this way. If I don't have it, I would be happy to get it. You know, it's, yeah, if, if you don't have it, you can mail it to. No, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I'd buy it if you know. I mean, I'm not about that. But it's 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 one of those things to where, um, yeah, you know, just because I don't have it on my show doesn't mean that it's you know it doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't equate to my perception of that particular piece of work. Let's put it that way. Got it. This is the Jay Allen Show. Hey, have you ever wanted to hear what's going on around in the world of safety and you're not able to do so? Have you ever wanted to take a listen to what exactly is going around in the world of safety? What if we called that thing around the safety pod? And we told you month over month, what is happening in the mix? Would you care to know? What would it be worth to you? Now, here's the fun part. Besides that you can find out exactly what's going on inside of the world of safety, there's also other information available there. Stuff that you can start using as early as today. How about you give us a look? Go to our website, safetyfmplus.com. That's safetyfmplus.com to find out what exactly is going on inside of the world of safety, around the world of safety, and inside of the world of safety. And don't forget to tell them that Jay Allen sent you. I'll see you on the other side. Make sure to join the revolution. And we are back on the Jay Allen Show on Safety FM. So let me ask. So let me ask this real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah. As you're looking through all of the certifications that you have and degrees that you have during the time that you're going back to school to get your ed ed D in regards, yeah. you decide to also at the same time go after your CSP. What's the reasoning, if you don't mind me asking? Well, because I mean, actually, because you're, you're going to one of the highest level educations that you can. Yeah. So do you think that one offsets sets the other or you should have both or what's your thought process? Yeah, there? yeah. No, I love that. Just a little bit to correct my record. No, I've had a CSP for a long time. Oh, okay. But, but okay. It just got renewed. I, I must have the last yeah. renewal. Yeah, then. <laughs> renewal rate is what you have probably, you know, somewhere around there. But no, I've had it for a long time. And, and as far as that goes, I get asked that a lot, especially um, – you know, with my work with SPAN, I think in SPAN, I had 20,000 professionals pass their exams going through and using SPAN materials that I've worked with. So, so I've had the opportunity to really engage with a lot of professionals in a lot of, you know, one-on-one and small uh, venues, small atmosphere. 
And, and what I found is they, I get asked that a lot. Should I go for an advanced degree or should I get my you know, credentials? And, and for me, I've always advised to get credentials. If you, you know, if you already got a four-year degree, then in the profession, it, I think it's more valuable in the short, and you can attain it a lot cheaper and a lot, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and it adds value to your portfolio. And so it's the difference of getting the interview or not, you know, and so putting the, le- and let me offer this too, just because somebody has the letters after their name, that doesn't make them all that. Uh, so no, I, I agree. I, I agree I, with I, that I, comment. <laughs> yeah, I've known, I've known PhDs and, and CSPs that I've fired literally because they're worth worthless. And I've I've known people that are, don't have a degree one that are the best safety coordinator, manager, professional that you could ever hope to find. And 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 they're going to get you know some credentials that you know maybe don't require a degree because they just aren't going to go back at. 35, 40, or have the resources to be able to go get a degree just to get a certain level of, of certification. So I don't think that really matters. To me, what matters is, is when the rubber meets the road, boots on the ground, and what does a professional do, uh, and, and how do they practice? To me, that's the most important thing. But I think those certification exams do push you, and, and it does make you realize, I think the feedback I get from a lot is, I don't realize how much I didn't know. And so that whole idea of really understanding the wide breadth of, of our profession, which is really a very interdisciplinary profession. We have hard sciences. We have the soft sciences. We talk to everybody in an organization. We can move through an organization. When you look at our profession, what our role and function is, it's very unique, I think, in, in, in within an organizational structure. And so... I think to have that credibility of letters after your name, if you're that good and qualify for it, then you should. It's a professional challenge, uh, you know, and, and I think to look at it that way is good. So to me, to go back and get a doctorate at, at, at 48 years old, it was really more of a passion for, for, for love of learning. You know, and and not only that, I could put, you know, doctor in front of my name, you know, and that way, when, that way, when I get deposed by attorneys and they call me Mr. Schneider, I could, that's Dr. Schneider. That's not, you know, I, I, always, I, I always tell people it, it's that whole thing, like the first week after you get it, it's like everybody has to call me doctor. And yeah, then after the first week, it's like, right, okay, right, right. You know, <laughs> unless, I, unless you annoy me, then it's like you have to call me doctor. All the yeah, time. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of almost. Yeah. You know, I really take on that note what's interesting to me anyway. You have one too, but uh, one of my early mentors was the the great um, uh, Dr. Knowles, Dr. Malcolm Knowles, and he was a leading pioneer in adult ed theory. And uh, he was actually at the University of Arkansas. I went to his funeral, um, but um, but basically he was really he didn't like any of that. He he was all about adults being the same, especially mm-hmm. in a learning environment. And whenever you'd see his interviews where they call him Dr. Knowles, he'd correct him and say, "No, that's Malcolm." I mean, he was very, very humble with that. And I, and I really, I really take, uh, I really take note of that. I think that's a real respectful way for those of us that have earned a higher level degree, not to flaunt it. I mean, you have it, people can see it, but to really overtly put it out there in a, in a way other than to, you know, again, bring credibility to your presentation or your written work or, or, or things like that. It's on your you know resume. But, but I'm always, it's kind of like the engineers too, you know, when, or when somebody or anybody from any profession, it doesn't matter, doctors, accountants, whatever. Hey, I'm so-and-so, I am a professional engineer, I'm a doctor in a this, or, you know, it's, you know, those types of credentials are yours, you got to be proud of them. But at the same time, it's, it's how you use them. It's how you actually use that knowledge you've gained. How do you really contribute back by having that, 
certification or that academic degree or that, you know, advanced degree of a doctorate. You know, I think if you're not doing those things to improve yourself and, and how you practice, you know, and it is really literally just to, for people to call you a doctor, you know, I, I think that's just kind of a misplaced opportunity, you know, for that. So I've always, yeah, you're right. When you first get it, you're proud. It's like, man, Dr. Snyder, you know, Dr. Allen, you know, and, and it is, and it makes you feel good. And you've accomplished something that, you know, not everybody can do, um, whether it be resources. I mean, anybody can do it if they dedicate themselves to it. It's not mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, yeah, you, you just have to have the time and the resources and, and the wherewithal to do it. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it does make you fat, proud. It makes you feel good. And then you're right. After about a week of that, you're like, all right, I'm over it. You know, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like move forward. But a couple of things before I forget. Number one, I want to apologize. You've been certified as a CSB professional ever since 2001. So I apologize no, for just no, putting the information. Yep. Then the other portion that I want to talk about the doctorate, I have a very close friend of mine that he warned people to know how important it was. He has it hung in his bathroom. <laughs> next to the toilet yeah i'm sure you can figure out who that is so yeah, there you go <laughs> yeah i know exactly who that is i'm pretty sure he told me the same thing one time you know uh, uh but uh yeah i probably had that same guy come speak early and he got into this profession back in the or you know speaking part of it uh back in the early 2000s i brought him to the conference of the ozarks when i was still mm-hmm. there uh at the safety council there i was the chairman of that that conference that local conference and and uh and I had just, uh, you know, I, I just took a wild, I saw the guy once and I took a wild throw out there and, and well, you know, and, and, and he came up with it. So, so I don't know, we may or may not be talking about the same guy. I'm, I'm pretty sure we are. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure, sure we, we are. are you know, so. <laughs> so, so tell me some changes that you're seeing inside of the industry. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of different work right now. I know that you're doing some stuff with the ASSP as well. I know that there is a, a pretty big vote coming up as well as, as we're taking a look. So what's going on in, in, in your neck of the woods? You know, I think, I think you know, the overall and the next thing that's in, in the profession, I think a lot of people are still obviously reeling and, and you know, everybody's tired of the cliched uh, excuse of COVID, but, but it is a profound event, um, you know, as far as overall societally, it, it's really, you know, really shaking some things up. So I think it, it is an opportunity for, I think, a lot of professionals to really kind of in this shaky ground of, I think the, the simplest way for me to put it with the profession anyway, is it seems like, you know, all of a sudden overnight, every safety and health professional is expected to be an infection control specialist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we were really ready for that per se, you know, and when companies started really leaning uh, on us in a profession in a, in a way that we had never really been trained for, prepared for, um, you know, I mean, some of us probably had disaster response training or, or business continuity planning or emergency planning. You know, we do all those things. But for the event of COVID with how that has unfolded, that's pretty pretty unprecedented. You know, I know we did some pandemic work when I was part of NIHS, when we did some simulated uh, mega disasters, you know, like somebody puts a dirty bomb in Philadelphia, you know, that was a fun exercise, you know, about 300, 300 uh, responders in the city and it was going about its business. Nobody knew anything. Uh, but, and it was a simulated, just to be clear for those that were <laughs> real. Make sure uh, we're clear. One yeah, more time. Just, it was simulated. Simulated. event here, you know, uh, but, But, um, you know, that kind of planning, you know, that pandemic idea, we did a little bit of it with animal disease, you know, as far as uh, agro-terrorism and how how our food supplies could be impacted. 
Um, and, and, and a lot of it was all academic, I, I think, from at least what I was involved with. I'm sure they did a lot. You know, basically the, the response plan that came up with the feds that they came up with, um, you know, about a year or about two or three years ago, I believe, uh, was really, really solid, I think, to, to address those things. But the, the rollout was tough. And I think the rollout in our particular profession, I think we kind of in some ways got, got caught, caught un, uh, unprepared because there wasn't a whole lot of professional development around uh, a COVID-like event. We all kind of knew about it, you know, about SARS, Ebola, you know, Spanish flu, you know, academically, I think we all have some level of epidemiologist in us or at least can track with it. But to actually think through a full event, you can never be 100 percent prepared. You know, I've worked with emergency rooms and hazmat stuff and, you know, these people are just very, very dynamic. But, but you get into a whole organization that's wondering they can't get parts to make their product, you know, all, the whole upstream, downstream issues that came with it, the sicknesses, the, you know, the mega spreaders, companies, you know, what do we want to do? Should we ha- have this, cancel this? And so I think it really put us at disequilibrium for a, a long period of time. And I think through that disequilibrium, we're going to start finding ourselves to get into some sustainable level of, of equilibrium on, on certain things. And I think that's come out of this, the idea of, uh, you know, inclusive, inclusivity and diversity has been a real one that's, that's kind of come out to, to one of the forefronts. And, and I think it's something that's been very much neglected in our, in our profession, you know, that idea of mental health. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, insurance companies, lawyers, there's a lot of reasons for that, you know, where that's been kind of, uh, I don't think been brought to the, to the forefront. Uh, it's not something that this country in particular is very good about doing. I'm, I'm always pleased, Jay, by the way, that you support the uh, suicide prevention and awareness. I do the same. I think that's a, a major thing. And I think we've, we've seen that with this event. So some of that psychological safety, mental and health, um, and then that kind of blends into that idea in, in some ways of diversity inclusion in that you have to be empathetic to these plights, you know, to these realities and, and how do we really do that? And so you start really seeing the movement now with uh, some of our psychologists that are really being more prevalent on the, you know, LinkedIn and and really starting to throw more psychology in there because that's what people are dealing with right now. Um, you know, we, we, we know about machine guarding, you know, we know about lockout, tagout, you know, we know, we know all these things and I'm being very general here, but, but to really get into the, to the real deep underlayings, underpinnings of, of what's happening from a, a psychological perspective and a social perspective and an uncertainty, this level of uncertainty. I think the paradigm shift that it's created is I think professionals have been forced to really look at uh, a broader scope, deeper into the soft science, deeper into the emotional uh, intelligence side of things um, and really being able to, exp- and, and a part of that, Jay, I think is experiential learning. In other words, you learn by experience, you know, I mean, we can, we can all, we can all imagine what it'd be like to be shot at, but unless you have, you know, <laughs> right. so, so I think that idea of, you know, that mental shift and, and as far as ASSP, you know, they put together a diversity inclusion committee and they're really looking at this on how we can, uh, put this out. And, and quite honestly, the more I've started to kind of explore this, um, and it really goes back to a lot of ethics and, and things, but um, it, it does it does make us pause. And I have found things reflecting on my practice and, and kind of awareness on things that just honestly were, were were just naive oversights, missteps. You just the things that are coming out now 
that are issues that impact negatively and positively issues of diversity and inclusion, I think some of the more tangible, actionable ideas and things are going to be generated from that because it's a big thing, man. It's a big element to try to tackle. And I don't know that we weren't, I don't think we were all prepared for it early. And I think as we're all fighting through that uh, to make meaning of it. And I can tell you that from a standard side and some of that, we're, we're going to start seeing more of those ideas integrated into the standards. Uh, it's much more so on the international standards, but uh, you're, you're looking at it now with, um, you know, involvement, you know, those ideas that have always been part of a management system, employee involvement. Okay. Well, what, what's employee involvement? Oh, on the safety committee, you know, and, and I think that we're starting to expand, <laughs> expand our ideas about what is a collective learning organization. You know, how do we learn? How do we listen? How do we uh, create an environment where people feel safe and secure, want to work can do their best you know, and, and, and all that, you look at the remote things where people are getting called back into work and they're like, man, I've been able to do this from the house from the last, you know, six months. I don't want to go back to that cubicle. You right. know? And so I think that there's this, you know, shift of what does it really mean to be a professional and not have to show up perhaps in an office nine to five. And I've had some that have struggled with that early, but I find now some seem like they can actually accomplish a little bit more because they're not getting whittled down throughout the day with, you know, uh, five minute putting fires out. Um, so, so I don't know. I think, I think our, our profession is changing, but I think it's mirroring the, the overall change in society and, and the workforce. And, and I think that that's where, where, where we have to start thinking a little more. And back to your earlier question, I think that's where, where the idea can be expanded into hops and where, again, that gets into a, bigger philosophical idea of, you know, uh, you know, culture, you know, safety culture. I mean, that's metaphysics, you know, what's it mean to be part of this culture? What's this culture mean? What's the reality of this uh, working environment? What's the reality of the organization? And so I think organizations are changing. Uh, there's also pushes from investors. You know, when you look at the, the financial sides of business acquisition, where they're starting to really look at, safety is a lead indicator and environmental issues as is lead indicators on whether or not a business is, is suitable for um, acquisition or merger. Um, and part of that, I think, especially if it's a European or foreign business, they're going to really want to know what they have as far as uh, employee assistance programs, which is what we've kind of always looked at. But I think we're going to see more of an overall wellness, uh, you know, health at the health side of things that are beyond chemical exposure, that are beyond ergonomics, that are beyond, you know, I think we're going to, I think it's a welcome thing to look at some of these mental states and it's in our literature, you know, from way back, but I don't think it's really been brought to the, to the table as a, as an acumen that we need to be versed in um, until, until this point. Well, let's unpack some of the stuff that you just said right there. And if you don't mind, let's kind of just backtrack just a small bit. When you reference that you're seeing a, kind of a, a larger change on the international side. It, it makes me think automatically of ISO 45,001 changing to fourth to actually advancing to ISO 45,003. Right. Do you think that this will be something that will be readily accepted throughout the industry? 
now that it has a psychological safety piece inside of it? Yeah, quite honestly, yeah. I think that I, I do. That's an excellent point. And I think that, you know, and this was actually started before COVID too. So, I mean, these are things that are just all of a sudden, well, no different than the Z490.2 virtual training that we completed uh, right before the year before COVID hit. And now everybody's doing virtual stuff. And so actually we kind of got serendipity on a few of the standards <laughs> that, that, you know, things have been. How did you know? How did you know? I'm joking. Well, you know, Jimmy, <laughs> I've, I've spent a lot of times in the woods alone and focused on nature, got in tune with the universe. Um, and so I think that, um, I think there was a lot, well, to answer that in honesty, I think there was, a, there's a lot of forward thinking thought leaders in our profession that have led the way before we had to have it and led the way. And, and this event happened before I think it went to some full level of, of implementation. But with that said, to your point, I don't know that we would have had the audience or the interest in those standards or the support for those standards, if not for the, the COVID event globally. Uh, they actually, we put together an emergency public available standard on COVID that, that, that they were pushing from ISO to say, you know, we're going to do this. And we had some reservations, you know, from the committee on our side. Um, uh, and, and that, you know, some of it was we can't call anything over their face PPE. That was kind of where we drew the line in the sand. You know, we said, look, you know, that's not going to work for us. You know, there's other things that make us uncomfortable, but that's, that's kind of one that we've got to really kind of push back on. So then it came to face coverings. Right. Because face coverings, a gator, a handkerchief, you know, just kind of a cloth you bought on the Internet. That's really not PPE. And we felt that that ought to be distinguished. You know, we're not saying it's wrong or not to do it, but let's be careful not to misrepresent what those two barriers, you know, are. And so I think those were some examples. But but quickly, they put out a, a temporary emergency stero- public uh, standard out just for guidance. And, and so that was probably the quickest. I think they put that out in like three or four months. And I think that's the quickest ISO's ever turned around anything, you know, uh, to make this happen. And it was a global, everybody was involved. You know, we, we even had the French involved, man. Everybody was involved, you know, with that, I guess. So, and then and and the French lead the way in some of those ideas of, of uh, you know, work-life balance and some of that. So that's kind of a European way of, of thinking of work. And, and I think we need to rethink uh, how we, we do some of that for, for the, the mental ideas. So, yeah, I think it is going to get some tailwind. I think there, there is going to be a push and a want and a desire for some of those standards um, and, and, and a real hunger for guidance documents. You know, for example, when uh, the CDC put out, when Dr. Howard put out that hierarchy of controls for COVID, you know, I mean, on a talk for ASSP, I think it was, maybe it was NSC, but anyway, he put that out there and everybody was like, yes, this is the kind of tools we need as safety professionals to, to be able to go back to our employers and the people we serve and, and really say, we have this plan and this is, this is not me, the local safety guy making this stuff up, man. You know, this is the entire profession. I think this whole leaning on the t- entire profession is something that we could do better at. Not everybody's their own island. And, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, a few people have said, keen people that have been key thought leaders have always said, 
you know, I'm not anything new. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. In other words, there were several people before us that laid the groundwork to where we are now. We just happen to be the ones picking up the baton right now. And I think that leads into, you know, some of us in our, you know, prime of our careers, 50 plus, you know, we've got to be thinking about what legacy and how are we going to mentor and, and make things better for the emerging safety professionals that are coming out of, you know, four-year programs in safety, which in my time getting in 30 years ago, didn't hardly exist. So anyway, there's, there's all that to unpack. I don't know if I went too far. <laughs> no, into no, 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 you're good. Now, here's my, here's my next question though, with everything changing so rapidly to, to an extent, even though there's been some serendipity into the whole thing. Have you thought about doing another pocket guide for essentials for now? You know, I, yeah, we the National Safety Council and I we were talking about that right before all this hit, and and it kind of has has been you know put on the back burner. I haven't you know pursued it, uh, and NSC hasn't pursued it either. I think everybody's kind of got bigger fish to fry, and plus, mm-hmm. you know, they tend to let the author you know initiate some of those things too. Well, I mean, I think that it's perfect time because you there's so many things that you can add now. <laughs> Oh, that essentials book that I wrote, I don't remember what that, 2014 or something like that. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot in there that I'd like to uh redo and, and make it, you know, a little bit more uh No, no, know, no. You, this this becomes the second version or the third version, not not the second edition, but you know, the the, the continuation too. It is, it is. Well, you know, second I think it's second edition now, so it'd be the third right. third edition. But you're right, it would just basically build on the work. And I think, and I know for a fact, all the things that we've been talking about so far today aren't touched in that. And so, you know, I've, I've grown a lot professionally. I'd like to think in six years and and I think uh, everybody should think of it that way. And so when I, and I, and by the way, I'm my worst own critic, Jay. I mean, I, nothing I put out there, I feel, is, I think it's all crap, you know, garbage. You know, people read something and, and it's just like, man, man, that was really good. I was thinking to myself, that's trash. I missed this or missed that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm very, you know, driven for myself. I'm very, I, I hopefully benevolent and, and, you know, don't expect that of everybody, but for my own self, I, I'm very, um, I, I'm not very, I'm not satisfied with my own work hardly at all. And so I, you know, deadlines come, throw it out there, you know, you get it. And there's always a piece of me that lingers that says, man, I wish I'd had more time on that, but mm-hmm. as, join as, the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I've been, I've always sought after mentors in my career. And, and, and I think that's some advice that I found very useful early and, and was able to experience it early. And, and I think that, you know, everybody thinks of mentoring or mentorship as, you know, an old dog, you know, an experienced person with a, a younger, non-experienced person. And that's not really true. Um, you know, I've had mentors that are right now, I've got a few mentors that are, that are in their twenties because I need to understand a little bit more about that, that group. Uh, even though my kids are in that group, but you know how that is, you know, but I mean that professional. Yeah. It's, it's called the powdered butt syndrome. You can't take advice of somebody who's you powdered their butt before. I <laughs> right, totally yeah, understand. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, like my dad told me, he said, I've always loved you, son, but you know, from the age 13 to 23, I didn't like you very much. And, then, <laughs> and, and I think as a father, I can attest to that now. I get what dad said. You know, I know what he means. Don't let them ever listen to this episode, at least not this portion. Oh, my, my, my son knows. You know, we've got to He's, he's, he's 22. So he'll be 23 this year. So he's, about, so, so, he, so he's almost out. He's almost so out of he it. He and I are both out of the dumb phase. I may not be as dumb now. He may not be as dumb now. I think we're coming to some reconciliation here, but, um, but, that, but I think, and then also mentoring among your peer group. I mean, to me, a mentor is somebody you think is going to help you almost like a, in a coaching way. Uh, coaching is a different, um, tactic in, in some ways, but some coaching methods, you know, 
definitely go into good mentoring. Um, and, and it usually is just the idea of somebody who does know something more than you or more experienced than you um, that you might be able to learn from. And, and so, you know, I've always been open to try to find and seek, you know, even if it's not necessarily formal, but you, you look at those people that in either inspire or they know something that you want to know, or, or they, they, they perform in a certain way that, that you think is just, wow, that was really impressive. Uh, and, and I think that those are the people that we kind of reach out to in different phases. And some, some of them might be lifelong mentors to us, you know, uh, and then towards the end, you might find that you're mentoring them. Uh, but, but that idea of always seeking out other people, uh, like, a, a you know, a star group, if you will, that kind of informs you and you can bounce things off of. And, and, uh, I think that's helpful, uh, in, in a career. It's kind it's the, peer, it's the reasonable peer doctrine in ethics. So if I'm struggling with something, you know, Jay is another professional and, and so you might be totally removed from the scenario, right? So I could just give you a call and say, Hey, Jay here's my situation, man. What do you think of that face value? And, and you have no real emotional ties to the situation that, you know, I may be clouded in. You're going to say, you know what, man, here's what you might consider, you know, and you're actually consulting and, and, and mentoring in a way of, 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 you know, what, what you, your take is on that. Well, if I were to call four or five professionals and four out of the five said, you're going down the wrong path, man. You know, I need to look at that. And at the same time, if, if all of them are pretty concurrent saying, no, that's actually, I think uh, that's probably how I would handle that. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, a tough one. So, so I think that idea of having, and I think that's what we're missing, by the way, in our live conferences is the networking. That's why everybody went. And oh, I think I that, that mental health of being amongst peers that are all fighting the same battles for different companies that we can, when we all sit down for a beer, you know, we can actually debrief and decompress and joke around and talk about stories. And that's when peer reasonable peer comes in. Oh yeah. Well, I had this one manager or I had this supervisor and, you know, and then somebody might say, you know, I had a guy like that and here's what worked for me, you know, we're missing that. And I don't think that, you know, that's, that's tough to capture, you know, or, or when, you know, I've given a conference uh, session and, and, you know, afterwards, you know, people come up and, and want to talk with you and, and I've had some good conversations walking down the hallway with people that are asking certain questions that they felt that I could help them with or ideas. And, and, and I, I miss that. Um, or I've grabbed people and done the same thing, you know, or, Hey, Hey, Jay, can I walk with you down to your next session? Yeah. Come on, Dan. Hey, I got a question. What microphone do you use, man? <laughs> I know you do this for a living. So, you know, help, help set a guy up. Uh, so, so I think that, that that's something that's important for, for not only our own learning and our collective sense of our profession, uh, but I think it does serve as a mental hygiene uh, opportunity to be with, with, with the peers that are in the same boat because, you know, it's, it's phenomena. It's a phenomenology. You know, what's the phenomena of being a safety and health professional? And only those that are in it know that phenomena. And, and so to, to not have that outlet of some of the local live meetings where you haven't seen, you know, I mean, we go to these conferences every year and I may only see these people once a year, but for five days, we're best buddies, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just, you catch up, you, you know, you do all that. And, and there's only so much of that that can linger in a real tangible, visceral way in, in a, a virtual environment. Uh, so I think that's something that, that we're also missing uh, and suffering from. Um, 
But there's some new cutting edge technology that's coming out that I'm working on now as far as this idea of blended and virtual and, and really trying to bring the essence of, of some live, you know, into uh, this type of platform, you know, a virtual platform, because I'll tell you, as an educator, there's a lot of benefit to it. I mean, I can do a lot. I can do things with this technology that I could never do live. No uh-huh. different than there are a lot of things that you can really only capture live. Uh, that's really, really tough, if not impossible to replicate, you know, in this platform, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the vision I have. And I've, I had it in the, as a matter of fact, when I went through my, my master's in adult ed in the nineties, and I was having all these real epiphanies of, wow, there's theories and there's this author. And I dove deep, man. I was reading all the way back to Confucius on, on learning. But um, but basically, you know, I always envisioned it. And we were doing futuristic stuff. We had some future speakers that said, yeah, how long do you think it's going to be until everything's virtual? All the information, you know, in this information age. Now, you got to understand, this is mid-90s. This is 90. I mean, Windows 95 had just that, that was revolutionary. That was the life changing yeah. event yeah, no, right this there. This was like 95. And so as we were talking about Windows 95, I mean, that's when we went from carrying around big old cases of acetate overheads and a big power, you know, projector and screen. You know, I, I did those days and I saw the transition into a, a laptop and a digital projector and PowerPoint. And so when that hit in 95, that was when I was in my master's for adult ed. And, and, and we really thought about what is the implications of this technology from an educational perspective? How can it be used? And so all the things we were daydreaming about what the future could look like in this realm for education, what it meant to education and training, technology has caught up. And I think now the demand for it with the COVID event has forced the issue and so I really feel that our predictions then were pretty accurate. We were saying 20 to 30 years and we're at 20, you know, 25 years from then. And, um, and so we're now seeing the things that we were talking about, the potential. Uh, 20 okay. So, so I have to ask the question, are you going to be testing this, um, this, this new technology with a large makeup company first? You know, that is mm-hmm. one. That is okay. definitely I, I kind of figured. That is I kind of figured. Um, and I'll tell you what, Jay, <laughs> it is amazing. I mean, the, the things we are able to do with that group of professionals internally and really building a collective intelligence and really building a, um, a, a, a library or a, a, a resource center. When you look at informatics, you know, how can you place information and retrieve information? And so when you look at, you know, the challenge always has been, you know, how do you get that consistency and, and safety training by and large is just horribly unstructured and formal in companies, you know, I would challenge any company to lay the current Z490 down and see if they felt they were in conformance with it and best practices of training and just wait until the committee gets done with the new one coming out next year, because we're, you ought to, I mean, we're researching the heck out of it and it's going to be a really, I think the best standard ever, but it's going to push the envelope because those training education systems stop at pre-test, post-test that mean nothing they stop at sign-in sheets, which mean nothing, and they they stop at, you know, there, there's no measurement of learning. There's no repository of knowledge when it comes to safety and health. And every new person that comes into the safety rules reinventing the wheel. And, and you might see reinventing the wheel happening within a fleet between, you know, facility A, facility B, facility C. 
So this, and, and that was because there just wasn't a way to tie them together. Well, there's a way to tie all that together now. And so the idea of a one-stop shop or a, a real knowledge center, a true knowledge center within an organization, when it comes to all things EHS, that's something that I think is within reach for sure now. And, and we're on the precipice of that. And also I'll say this, everything ties back to education, communication, and training. You look at every standard, you look at everything, they all cite back to Z490 as the pinnacle one uh, standard that ties it all together. And so you can't have this, that, or the other without talking about it, communicating it effectively, getting buy-in, you know, all those are communication skills and all those are part of training and education in a way. And so I think that is going to change the way that professionals really look at training. You know, well, I'm a trainer. I went to an OSHA authorized trainer course. Well, yeah, they do some adult ed stuff there and it's a good program for that. Uh, but that doesn't capture a full learning design, you know, that goes from how are you measuring this? Is it valid? Is it reliable? Do we did statistical significance on things? None of that's happening in the training education piece of our, of our business that I'm aware of, not very well anyway. And so, that whole idea of bringing this comprehensive and then it not, it bleeds out into the rest of the management team too. So everybody has a dashboard. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows what their role and involvement is. So it's kind of that ideal that Dr. Peterson talked about back in the eighties about this, you know, complete involvement, this idea of, you know, he was one of the first ones really right that it's not the safety guy's job. It's management's job, you know, and, and, and that was in literature a long time ago. And still we have professionals today that are basically being used to run around with their hair on fire, putting out safety concerns that quite honestly are operational things. And so when I, you know, I've been called into the CEO's office before too, you know, they're griping about the work comp dollars and they're griping about the incident rates and the OSHA log and all that kind of stuff and telling me I got to fix it. And I've looked at, I just looked at him and say, look, man, you're asking, well, let me, there was one that, that I did this route. I said, well, that's pretty cool. Where do we, when do we sign the paperwork? And the guy, the guy looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, well, for, to do the things you're asking, that means I'm now the owner of this company. So. And I could imagine the moment of freaking out that was on their face at the moment that yeah, you said that. Yeah. Well, what's awesome is I'm, I was an outside, you know, third party consultant that was contracted into, you know, because they got rid of their safety people and didn't think they needed them. And then a year later, all their numbers were whacked up. So they hired me temporarily to, till they could fill the role. So I had nothing to lose, man. I mean, I'll get in my truck and go home. You know, if you don't want me here, I don't, I'm not going to sugarcoat stuff. Right. Uh, you know, I am an infantry guy after all, but, <laughs> you know, at, but, at, you know, with, with hopefully some, some tact, but at the end of the day, it was like, you know, you're, you're asking me to be responsible and accountable for numbers and things I have no control over. And I think that's kind of the pushback that, uh, you know, we're starting to see, come into the conference processions over the last five or 10 years, you know, that this idea of, you know, what's our job and role and function, what's the rest of management's role and function. And it takes everybody to have a real systematic approach to safety. And a lot of companies have talked that talk, but when you really get down to operations on the ground, you know, I've still had a lot of them where, well, that's your job safety guy, man. You know, no, not really. 
<laughs> Welcome to the cultural change. Well, Daniel, I want to ask you if people want to know more information about you and what you have going on, where can they go out to find out more? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I think that's a good thing and trying to be uh, more active and really uh, be involved there. And then uh, my website for uh, the company that I'm working with now that's doing the, the learning design and all that stuff is, is Safety Mentor. So safetymentor.com or, or LinkedIn, and, and that's where people can, can uh, get more or reach out to me. Well, Daniel, I truly do appreciate you coming on to the show today. Hey, I'm very welcome for the invite, Jay. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I really like the, the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. We need to do this again at some point. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. So do you feel like you're missing out on what everyone is starting to do now, that live streaming thing, and you don't know where to start or what to do? I have the resource and the information to provide to you in regards on how you can stream onto 40 social media platforms all at one time. Yes, that's 44-0 social media platforms all at one time. All you'll need to do is go to safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's O-N-E. So just in case... And you'll be able to start live streaming just like you're hearing people starting to do right now up to 40 social media platforms.